and welcome to This Is Strong, the podcast that celebrates strength and resilience in women who are just like you, living their day-to-day lives, but doing amazing things. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. And don't forget to check out our website, this-is-strong.com, because there's links there to every single episode and also loads of information, uh, photos and links and things. Today's episode, I'm joined by a really good friend of mine, Nia. Uh, Nia and I live around the corner from each other, but we see each other about three times a year. It's crazy. I really love Nia. She always, always makes me laugh. Um, Now, over in the UK at the moment, we are kind of easing out of our corona lockdown, uh, which is a kind of, I don't know, interesting time. Uh, Some people are really embracing the easing of the lockdown. Other people are a little bit more uh, reticent about things moving towards normality. Um, the reason I wanted to speak to Nia was because she works at our local hospital local hospital here in Bedford. So she was literally at the front lines of what was happening during the coronavirus and lockdown. And, you know, over in the UK here, we, we religiously went out every Thursday night and clapped for our key workers um, and anyone who uh, was working with the NHS. And I always thought about Nia and wondered how it was going for her because she was having to go into the hospital every day as part of her normal job. So it seemed like a great time now that we're easing out of lockdown and life is kind of getting back to some kind of normality. I thought it would be a great opportunity to catch up with her and find out what it was like for her at the start of lockdown, going back to to work. Um, So this is Nia and this is Strong. Um, Nia, thank you so much for joining me. Sorry, we're just we've just caught up and had a laugh before I hit the record button, which is which is how we operate. Um, I have to explain to everybody that Nia is one of my dearest friends who I never get to see, even though we live like three minutes away, and it's ridiculous. It is. It is. Although we do. Um nearly crash into each other quite frequently on various school runs don't we yeah we do we we wave at each other a lot while while uh, you know on two wheels uh, racing to school yeah but, um but yes we should see more of we each should, other we were just definitely. saying how difficult it is and that you have to start a podcast in order to have yeah. a chat with a friend the things you'll do to catch up with your pals now um the reason i asked you on is because uh, coming out of this uh, lockdown situation or easing out of it as we are in the UK, um, you were one of the people we clapped for every Thursday being not only a key worker but a high up person at the local hospital. <laughs> so you were front and centre, which is why I want to know how the hell did you cope? and what it was like for you. So first of all, can you tell me, what, what, what is it that you do at the hospital? So I am a senior service manager, which is um, when when I talk to my colleagues who do the same job, we actually are all in agreement. It's really difficult to explain what we do on a day-to-day basis because essentially it changes every single day. So there are some kind of basic stuff that we do repeatedly and one of those is that we 
are responsible for ensuring that whichever clinical areas that we are managing, so I look after several surgical specialties, we um, Mm. make sure that we have enough clinics running to meet the demand of patients. Um, We set up theatre lists so we can undertake operations. Um, We track patients going through treatment so we can make sure that we're hitting national targets and patients are receiving the treatment they need in the time that they need it. Um, and so we do, we do a lot of that, which is kind of, you know, planning, thinking ahead, scheduling of stuff and essentially getting doctors and nurses quite often into the right place that they need to be to meet the needs of our patients. Um, so that also like basically running the ship, like making sure everything. Yeah. For for my little area, my little part of it. Yeah. There's lots of us doing it and we all are you know essentially trying to do the same thing with our with our respective services so that and it I mean that doesn't sound particularly interesting it can be very interesting and it can be very challenging but um the other side of the job is the kind of daily um operational management is the proper term for it but um most of us would know it as firefighting it's dealing with any number of catastrophes, disasters, um, all sorts of things that might happen on a day-to-day basis. So a doctor ringing in sick when you've got a theatre list booked, trying to sort things out like that. Um, okay. Making sure that you've got doctors on call overnight. Um, just it's honestly the, the variation in what that might involve yeah. changes. Well, it would be logistical because you've got so many people, you're dealing with so many members yeah. of staff. Yeah. And logistics of rooms I suppose and all of that sort of stuff yeah so trying to make sure that you've got the physical capacity plus the staff um to to meet the needs of the patients and then okay. the kind of third part of my job is that I'm on the um, senior manager on call rota so about once every three weeks I'm on call for a 24-hour period and essentially um there there is um, somebody more senior than me, a gold on call, who I can escalate to if there's anything that I can't resolve. But essentially, for those 24 hours, if there are any severe operational issues, so you know something's going wrong in A and E, or we're struggling to discharge patients, or honestly, I've I've never had yeah. two on call shifts the same. So all sorts of things can happen in a hospital, um, and it's essentially trying to sort all that stuff out. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's your normal day-to-day job. Yes. And then suddenly, earlier in 2020, we know that there's something bad coming. Yeah. Knowing that what's happening in Italy and uh, we know that, you know, we didn't close our borders and we're probably going to end up in that situation. Because I remember that time quite clearly yes. where we were looking at Italy and everybody was saying to us, you're two weeks behind us, Yeah. basically. Um, so for you, what was that like at the hospital then? Um. So when I think back to that particular period in time, I, it's really hazy memories because it's mm-hmm. so much has happened and the intensity of work has been so great that actually I was obviously, you know, when we arranged this um, podcast, I started to think about, you know, the very beginning, if you like, or before yeah. the beginning. Yeah. Um, because for me, in my mind, everything that the before the beginning is everything prior to the 23rd of March when the full-on lockdown occurred. Um, yeah. So up to that point, I, I guess we were acutely aware that something was coming. There was a lot of anxiety. Um, 
there was a lot of uncertainty. And I think because not it didn't feel that things were moving quickly enough at a national level in terms of, you know, closing the schools and, yeah. you know, saying to people, don't go out, but the pubs can stay open and things like that. The messages were so mixed that mm. it was quite hard to judge, well, actually, should we be taking this more seriously than we are? Um, yeah. You know, what, what should we actually be doing? But I think the NHS as a whole kind of acted really quickly and so probably in early March, we started to do some real, really serious planning about what are we going to do when this thing hits, mm. because we know it's going to get worse. Um, and so at that point, it just, you know, when you can just sense that there's this kind of collective anxiety about oh, what on earth are we going to do? And you're just yeah. waiting for something to happen and you almost yeah. just wish it would start already. Yeah, yeah, so you can yeah. just get on well, with it. Yeah. You can stop yeah. worrying about it. The reality is here and you'll just find out what it's like rather than lying yeah. awake at night thinking, oh, crap, what's going to happen tomorrow? Yeah. Um, so well, that... It was the waiting as well because we knew, but we didn't know. Yeah. It... <laughs> we... <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was, yeah. So it was, um, and you didn't know you know you were hearing stories coming out of London and you just think well is this thing creeping up the M1 and how is it going to affect us as kind of individuals and as an organization and um, certainly I think um, obviously the government was of this view and I I think most people that I work with were you know our biggest fear that you'd have scenes of patients being treated in corridors and that we would run out of beds and that that alone I remember just whenever I thought about that just finding it completely overwhelming because you just like Mm -hmm. couldn't fathom that in Bedford we could be facing that it's like yeah what how so um so I feel so grateful that we never even got close to that point and I think a lot of that was down to um just tremendous amount of hard work and planning ahead to Mm. try and reduce the number of patients that we had coming into hospital yeah to make sure there was and at that time there was that whole PPE thing as well that we didn't have enough PPE for the staff and everything that must have been a massive impact on your role uh yeah yeah it did um yeah we you know I think any NHS provider has had sticky situations shall we say with PPE um Mm. luckily we're we're no longer facing them but there were there were certainly points where it was it was getting very worrying um yeah and um you know that in itself creates a lot of anxiety for people because obviously you need the PPE but um I think overall it was okay um yeah yeah so yeah yeah no it was a really tricky one as well because it's like you know, you're trying to ensure everybody's safety, but, you know, it's, you only got what you've got sort of yeah. thing. And then, mm. you know, you realise that you need to start doing kind of really detailed inventories of everything you've got. So suddenly you go from never having to worry about how many plastic aprons you have to mm. knowing the precise number of plastic aprons. Yeah. And I remember seeing it on a whiteboard in our operations room. We had like 275,000 plastic aprons. And I was thinking, Gosh. I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> but well, I'm glad somebody's worked out that we have that many. <laughs> so. 
it's actually, I mean, it's bizarre all of the different things we've learned over the last four or five months. Yeah. You know, and all the words. I mean, I've never even, I had never even heard of PPE, personal protective equipment. I've yeah. never even crossed my mind that that would be an issue. Yeah. Or that we would be discussing plastic aprons. Or, <laughs> yeah. You know. So we've all we've all had a massive steep learning curve over the last five months, but I'm sure being in the guts of a hospital, you've, your learning curve was huge. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's um, and, been character building, shall we say? I bet it has. <laughs> and also, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was this. You mentioned anxiety, and you know we all felt anxious, and and we still do to some to some degree. But I can't imagine what it would have been like to go to sort of like ground zero every day and know that you were in the kind of hotbed so I so I although working in a hospital you yes you are but the sickest patients and those that we knew had COVID had all have always been cared for in such a way that the the exposure of any other member of staff is minimized so Mm. um you know you can only go into intensive care if you can wear the full-on ppe so another very glamorous subject ffp3 masks which is one of the best type of face masks that you can have um filters out nearly everything so unless you um, have demonstrated that you can wear those safely then you can't go in there and you would only go in there if there is a clinical reason for you to go in there and I never had a reason to go to these parts of the hospital because I'm yeah. not clinical so in that sense I was never exposed to it in the way that a lot of my clinical colleagues were but having said that I was still going into work and dealing with surgeons and nurses mm. who were face-to-face you know, interacting mm. with patients with COVID and then I was meeting with them and Yeah. You know, so oh, you was, were one step away. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Yeah. And then obviously shared touch points, you know, doors and all of this sort of yeah. thing. So um you know, obviously there is some risk there, but I never felt and I still don't, and I have never felt particularly anxious about being at the hospital for some reason. I think part of it is um I, I don't know I'm uh, maybe I've got that kind of quite human defense mechanism of it will never happen to me yeah <laughs> Which handy, handy. I'm quite happy with I'm quite happy to live like that um because it's meant that I've never felt particularly anxious for myself in either you know in my work environment that's um, good yeah that's good because I don't think I'd be as strong as that I I think I would be anxious for myself and also anxious to bring it home so I that think was my biggest fear and I think um like one of the you know obviously there are a lot of standout moments from the last few months but the one that really kind of is probably going to stay with me the most is when you know the children finished school that Friday and they were sent home and it's like oh well we don't know when you're coming back and um you know the children come home and then the next week I continue going to work and my husband's at home with the children attempting to work and educate them at the same time which I can't even imagine how so many people have managed to do that um well yeah I you know had the I was the lucky one I think in our equation really um (laughs) I'm not a natural born educator um (laughs) so um yeah a couple of weeks after they'd finished school and I'd been doing the shopping because you know 
John wasn't leaving the house and it just felt like, well, why would you when I'm already leaving the house and going to work in a hospital? I should be the one that goes to the supermarket once a week. So, yeah, it was only me leaving the house. And then after they'd been out of school for just over two weeks, I was driving into work one morning and it suddenly dawned on me. If they catch this, they've caught it from me. And I was just the rest of that day. I was just like, oh, my God. And it just yeah. really blew my mind. And I just suddenly thought, because, and even, at, um, because really at that point, we didn't know the impact it had on children. We, you know, a lot yeah. of people were saying that the impact was lesser on children, but we didn't know that for sure. Mm. Um, and so that was kind of a really sort of jarring and. Um, the weight of the responsibility. Yeah, yeah. 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 I know. I'm like, I mean, we, I mean, I think every household did what you did is that we chose a person to go out. So my husband did all the shopping. And I stayed home and educated the children. And I think we all had that thing of we can't all take the risk. No. So one of us will go. But to be the person that goes, you do have that responsibility. Of, well, I'm the one that could – I need to make sure that I'm wearing my mask and I'm doing my hands because I – yeah, like you said, yeah. I'll, I'll be the one that brings it. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, and so that was – and then, you know, the – we we think the children have had it and it's you know it's possible that I brought it home asymptomatically to them but I think we'll only know for sure if I manage to get a um an antibody test um, and are you going for an antibody test yeah I've requested one but um frontline clinical staff are being prioritized so I'm you know yeah. I'm sure I'll get one at some point but I don't you know I, yeah I'm sure I'll get and are they they're hard to get accurate readings on anyway aren't they I don't think I think the antibody is all right. I think it's the um, COVID swab to detect if you've got it. Maybe I don't know. I don't know that much about I don't the know antibody. Either. I know the the thing that I've found confusing in the last four or five months uh, is just this constant barrage of statistics and numbers and this many people and this and this demographic and everything. But then oh, but the testing isn't very accurate, and we're not testing that many people. And you so you're trying to figure out what the heck the information means yeah and I've got to the point where I'm just like you know what I can't do this anymore I can't look at these numbers because it doesn't make any sense anymore yeah yeah definitely I I think it's yeah because it's all so new and we're still learning so much about it and yeah it's just a very uncertain time, isn't it? Mm. So you got to, I mean, so that you were saying that, the, you know, fortunately the hospital wasn't overwhelmed. In fact, I don't think any hospital in the UK no. was ever overwhelmed, um, which is an amazing achievement for everybody that stayed home, I suppose. Yeah, um, absolutely. Is that is that the reality, that the lockdown actually worked that well? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, if you look at what happened within the two or three weeks after the lockdown started, I think that, Obviously, those people who suddenly became acutely unwell, some of them went on to die. Um, they would have been infected most likely pre-lockdown. So it yeah. it undoubtedly worked um, and probably would have worked better had it been done sooner. Um, yeah. And it, how do you feel now? Like comfortable about the easing of the lockdown? Uh, no, I don't feel comfortable with it I don't um I I completely understand the need to start to resume some sort of normal functioning society um but I still I I don't I don't know I mean I 
I haven't really done anything beyond going to Tesco's or whichever supermarket yeah. I've chosen to go to that week. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, yeah, I still don't feel entirely comfortable with it. Having said that, I am going to the hairdresser on Saturday, so I am a bit of a hypocrite. Well, but I can't a, live with my you're... roots anymore because <laughs> Sebastian, my youngest son, um, keeps saying to me, "Mummy, your hair is a funny colour because I have a lot of grey. <laughs> when are you going to get rid of it? <laughs> so I'm doing it for him. <laughs> well, um, my husband was picking up my daughter from school and another child happened to say to him, now he's never coloured his hair and never will, but this other child said to him, is that your grandpa? <laughs> oh, has he had a haircut? Because I've seen him a few times with quite curly no, hair. Got, I, I love know, it. He's got lovely lockdown locks and he's oh. going to keep them. I think he's going to go for it. He's just going to let them grow and grow and grow. Amazing. Yeah, I'm happy for it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't think he should go to the hairdresser ever again. There's no need. Is there? No need. No, no need. need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't feel that comfortable either, really. I mean, I think my behaviour will change yeah. forever to some degree. Um, there's some things about lockdown that I actually quite enjoyed. And I think a lot of people I've spoken to felt the same. You know, there was a pace of life that was better. Oh, yeah. There was the pressure was taken off, the pressure of the rushing and the pressure of, you know, even some of the social pressure of, um, you know, oh, I've got to go out. I said I would. I really don't want to. I'm tired. That kind of thing was just gone. And I really loved that. I did. I, I loved being able to come home from work and have a completely pure justification for putting my pajamas straight on because it's like, well, I'm not going anywhere else and I'm not going to dirty another outfit so um, <laughs> um and also you know there was no traffic I never yeah. had to you know there was no kind of parking space battles at the hospital um mm. you know there, there there were some benefits um, there were yeah. and this whole I mean uh the Thursday clap was um you know we met loads of our neighbors and got to know them better and everything I mean did you clap or were you always working at that time um no I didn't clap I yeah I I don't know I never felt comfortable with it um don't know why felt a bit weird about it was it because you would be clapping yourself um that's a very small part of it um (laughs) Yeah, no, I just, yeah, it wasn't something that I felt entirely comfortable doing. I think the first time it happened, I was, I don't know, lying on my bed watching Netflix or something because there was nothing else to do. And um, I I didn't even know that it was happening and then just heard this kind of enormous sort of rumble. And it was really kind of, you know, it was a really powerful feeling. But I would have been quite happy for that to have been it. Like, just once <laughs> maybe I'm a bit too British like, just do it the once I know. And then it, just say it, thank it you did. and then carry on yeah well it did it did seem to go on for yeah. a, probably a few too many weeks and I remember the last one we were all sort of breathing a sigh of relief we're like oh we don't have to do this again and yeah. um one of our neighbours from across the road went okay guys see you next pandemic <laughs> <God. Yeah>. great <laughs> Oh. Uh, so there was good to come out of it I yeah. suppose in some ways definitely but, I mean I, I mean I just I kept thinking about you having to go into the hospital and dealing with anxious colleagues and anxious um 
patients and I know yeah. you don't deal directly with the patients, but just the vibe of the place yeah. that you worked in would have been massively different. Yeah. So, I mean, I take my hat off to you. I think it's an amazing thing that you've done. Oh, thank and you. Continue, can continue to do. Yeah. And does it feel, does it feel any, like, have you, has it fallen into a rhythm there now and everybody's kind of knows um, what's going on and feels better about it or? Um, not really. So it's, we're now in a difficult, very difficult, challenging period of trying to resume what we normally do. So, mm. um, and one of my biggest anxieties during the, you know, the peak of it all was, so I, um, at the time, and I still manage vascular surgery mm. and it's a specialty that deals with, um, it largely does life and limb saving operations on patients who are going to either lose their legs or lose their lives because they've had strokes or they've got aneurysms. So really, really specialist, high skilled stuff. Um, but at the, at the, you know, before the lockdown fully happened, we started to cancel um, routine operations because the risk to, you know, we had to balance out the risk to the yeah. patient of not having the procedure versus the risk of potentially catching COVID. Yeah. And for a lot of patients who were undergoing routine operations, the risk was just too great. You, you couldn't justify it. And then yeah. um, and it was the same for clinics. So, you know, we have a lot of patients who sometimes don't realise how unwell they are and they might come into clinic and it turns out that they're actually, you know, really poorly and they need something doing. Um, so it, a lot of the early days was spent trying to make sure that none of those patients are falling through the gaps and um and i i believe i hope that we did that really well um yeah. you know the team that i work with were amazing they continue yeah. to see patients face to face they continue to operate when they needed to and you know it goes they i have no doubt that they saved multiple lives in doing so but we're now in a position all the other patients who had their appointments or their operations cancelled we've now got to still see them and treat them. Mm. Plus we've still got the constant influx that we get daily, yeah. weekly, monthly anyway. So, you know, we have a backlog. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen in the press that they think that by the end of the year, there'll be 10 million people waiting on an NHS waiting list. I mean, we've yeah. only got a population of 70 million. That's like oh, more than 10% of the population are going to be on some sort of NHS waiting yeah. list. It makes you realise what a, an absolute juggernaut the NHS is. If yeah. you know, if five months backlog equals ten million, that's yeah, easily because going into it, there were about four million in total waiting. Yeah, so it will have gone up by you know, if if the trends happen as they're being predicted to, then it will be you know close to ten million by the end of the year. Well, obviously not all of that is in Bedford Hospital, fortunately, um, yeah. but dealing with that as we begin to live in a post-covid society it's not even just a case of well let's just do more clinics or let's just do you know we'll just do what we used to do everything yeah. now is taking so much longer because yeah, we have course. to we, down to the number of chairs that we can put in a waiting room you know you used to go yeah. into outpatients and the outpatient clinics and you know you'd have rows and rows of chairs with patients in mm. 
Yeah. Well, now you have a chair and then the next chair is two meters away and then the next chair is two meters away. So, you know, yeah, everything so. from where do the patients sit before their appointments to how long it takes to clean theatres in between each case, everything is taking longer. Mm. Um, and when you're trying to deal with a backlog and everything is going to take longer, it's, yeah. So we're still working through that. Um, so what's, how's that going to be resolved then? Or is it just a matter of enormous amount of time? Um, time, yeah. It's, I mm. think it's going to take a long time to get back to where we were in January, say, in terms and of how long people a, were waiting. Yeah. yeah, and that's got to affect a lot of people in terms of, you know, they're not going to be directly affected by COVID, but they'll be directly affected medically because yeah. of this. Yeah, yeah potentially. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's kind of where a lot of my time is spent these days. Is you know trying to um, do what we can um, mm. for the patients that we that we have. Um, yeah. So it's a it it's can be quite challenging at times. Yeah. And how's morale? Are people, uh, your colleagues and yourself, able to feel positive about the future, or? Um, is it overwhelming still? I think everyone's really tired. Really, yeah, I. Yeah. It's. To be honest, I don't. When it comes to my job, I don't really think much beyond the next kind of month or two, mm. um, because things change so quickly. We've learned that, you know, guidance will change at the drop of a hat, and you have to implement it immediately. Yeah. You know, one of one of the most challenging days we've had was um, kind of as we were trying to restart elective operations, um, we were told, you know, the guidance was all patients should isolate for 14, uh, seven days before their operation. And then you swab them. And then if they've got a negative swab, then you go ahead. And this was changed on a Friday evening to the patient and their entire household has to isolate for 14 days. And so everybody that we'd booked in for the next week, had to be rescheduled for the week after but some of them their household members hadn't been isolating because they've been going to work and so it's just dealing oh with that God. and the chaos that brings and I, I completely understand why guidance changes because when it's something that you don't know much about yeah then you just have to respond as quickly as you can but it's yeah. it's just it, been... it just feels that we're all walking on kind of like wobbly jello or something like because yeah. we can't seem to get a level ground here because we just don't it all changes all the time it does it does and so and I think as a kind of defense mechanism I don't look too far ahead now because no. I just think well it's all going to change soon I just have yeah. to assume it's going to change so if I plan ahead for you know four five six weeks then I can be reasonably confident that you know what I'm attempting to do now will happen yeah. um what I don't want to do is, you know, plan so far ahead and then for it all to be kind of thrown up into the air again. So Yeah, I know. Well, I think but we all feel like that even about, well, you know, summer holidays and then do they go back to school in September and what's school going to look like? And, and, you know, are they going to be doing anything like what they used to be doing at school? Yeah. I mean, it's also it's also crazy. It is. And you like you couldn't have made it up, could you? Like you no. honestly could like this time last year, you would not uh, have thought it was even we were, 
we were so naive. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. This and not only were we naive, but I feel like we were wasting our time being worrying about silly things. Yeah, yeah, you know definitely. I mean? like, you know, now it's like no, because I often think about my daughter. Like, um, she's seven. And when I think about the fact that for the last five months her life has has been turned upside down, you know, and that's a massive percentage of her actual life. Yeah. For us, it's just four or five months out of you know having you know, forty odd years. Yeah. But for her, it's a massive chunk of her life. Yeah. And this is this is her reality now. This is what the world looks like. Yeah. And how we behave. I mean, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. It's, yeah. Because I've been thinking recently. It's I think the pandemic has the impact it's going to have is is you know there are certain events that just change the world mm. and you know 9-11 yeah the way we interact and the way we travel was changed forevermore as a result of that and you know the the way we interact on a face-to-face level is going to change forevermore I think I think so after this because people are going to remember that it can all very you know it can very easily get to a point where um yeah millions of people are dying do you think we'll look back at photos of us with our arms around each other at sort of nightclubs and stuff going oh look at us how silly you know our children will be going i can't believe you got you're hugging that person yeah i can't believe you were allowed to cuddle i mean uh, yeah. yeah at work we have to wear face masks i don't have to wear a face mask in my office but in any other part of the hospital so just walking down the corridor I have to wear a face mask now and you know the first few days it felt really weird and now yeah. i feel really weird not wearing a face mask and That's you get great. used to having more and better eye contact with people because you can't see their face. You know, you can't see half of their face. Um, and I don't, you know, how long is that going to go on for? Nobody knows. Um, I don't like it. I don't like it because I find it, um, I mean, I, I will get used to it and I do wear a face mask and everything, but I don't like not being able to recognise people clearly. Yeah. And when you meet somebody that you don't know, so this has happened a few times, Um to me at work you know I've met with somebody who I've not met before and then you know if you if you manage to be meeting somewhere where you can remove the mask so if you can socially distance safely so you can sit two meters apart then you can take your masks off yeah and I've you know on a few occasions I've been really surprised at what the other person looks like because <laughs> <laughs> I was like oh I didn't know that's what you looked like um because I could only see your eyes so um yeah it's really weird. I do worry. I worry that there's, you know, you know how they used to say um, in shops and stuff, you've got to remove your hoodie or whatever because yeah. we want the cameras to be able to recognise you. Well, they can't, they can't do that anymore, can they? You can't, can't no. say you've got to remove your mask. So I do think, gosh, you could get it if you were a criminal. Oh yeah, made, made in the shade now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, you could get away with anything, couldn't you? Really? Mm, yeah. Not that I would oh, endorse criminal behaviour. No, obviously. and I'm back to that jello world again where I'm like, oh, no, none of this makes any sense. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> oh, no, criminals are at an advantage. Oh, no. <laughs> All wearing surgical face masks. <laughs> what a world. Oh, you do have to laugh, though, don't oh, you? I mean, it's humour through, really. Humour and Netflix. Yes. Absolutely. Thank God for Netflix. And we bought a kitten, so, you know, that's oh. entertaining us. 
Oh, that is nice. Yeah. I'm glad. And you mentioned that your ch- you think your children had COVID. Yeah. But they were okay. Yeah, yeah, they're fine. They're fine. Um, yeah, yeah, they just had some kind of mildish symptoms. But, um, yeah, no, they were fine. They just needed to rest and sleep a lot and, yeah. Yeah. So, no, well, that's good. That's good news. Yeah, I mean, I think... I t- <laughs> I don't know if I'm a bit, I don't think I'm blasé about it, but, you know, I've had so many colleagues that have had it. Um, some have been really unwell. Um, yeah. Not that it's no big deal. That's a ridiculous thing to say, but it, yeah. I, I it kind of mean. puts things in perspective. And I just think, well, actually, you know, a lot of people catch it and the vast majority of people are right. fine. The vast yeah. majority. Um I know. I do so, know. I do, I do think the press have been a little bit not naughty. I don't want to say that, but you know, just the, if you read the papers and you follow it online, of course they're going to pick up the stories of the most ill people and the most unexpected symptoms and the most horrible yeah. horrible stories. Of course they're going to pick those up. But if you read those every day and that becomes your knowledge of it then you're likely to fall into some kind of pit of despair because it seems so bad. Yeah. But then when you step away and you speak to somebody more realistic like you, say, you know, actually, no, seriously, you know, most people are okay. Yeah. Then and, you can... and that's with the knowledge that, you know, we've had a lot of patients who weren't okay. And, I know. But that's, it's, you know, for a lot of them, it was because they were very poorly anyway yeah um and this made things worse for others it's just it just appears like it's absolutely horrific misfortune you know why Mm. um but it's still you know it's I don't know otherwise if you I just think if I thought about it in too much depth sometimes you'd kind of be paralyzed by fear wouldn't you well that's it that's it. And I do think fear is dangerous in that way because it does stop you living your life. Yeah. And, and it's, that's, I mean, I think that's why a lot of us have had to be strong during this whole thing is because you want to sink into the fear because you do. You kind of want to go, right, I'll just stay at home all the time then and I won't do anything and we won't see anything because at least I know I'm safe then. But actually, reality is we do have to live our lives. And yeah. we do have to maintain some kind of society and some sort of economy. And we do have to, you know, we do have to sort of carry on. Yeah. Um, and so the fear is not going to be helpful. No. So. But we just have to try and work our way to some sort of new norm. Yeah. God knows what that's going to look like. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's kind of, it's, I, I tell you what it looks like. It looks like a jello world. Everyone's <laughs> wearing face masks. <laughs> <laughs> including the criminals <laughs> oh, a jello world it is it's a jello world of movement and uncertainty and everything feels a bit wobbly but we'll yeah. find level ground again i'm sure we will yeah it just you know yeah. if everybody carries on doing what they do best like you've been doing and uh you know then we'll be fine We'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> God, can you imagine if, I think in two years' time, we're looking back going, God, do you remember that? That was so weird. Thank yeah. God that's over with and we never have to talk about that again. Yeah. I, I think, um, yeah. 
yeah it's going to be a while before it feels fine but you know I do think we will get there eventually (laughs) yeah (laughs) I'm sure I agree with you now just to before we finish up um is there anyone that you particularly admire through this whole thing who you think's done an amazing job oh an amazing job or coped really well um god I there are too many examples there is there's just mm. so many people um you know when I think about colleagues at work and what they've been through um mm. you know my heart breaks for some of them from what I know that they've witnessed and what they've had to endure um oh, crikey and then you know friends and family who have you know been so resilient in the face of in some cases you know extreme isolation and loneliness I'd yeah Yeah. I'd struggle to pick somebody in particular but I think you um, don't have to you don't have to because that's enough I mean that's enough it's it's exact I mean the the weird thing about this situation it, it has affected everybody yeah and everybody has had to make changes and they have had to find resilience and strength so you yes. don't have to choose one person because it's kind of everybody. Yeah. Kind of, in a way. I think, though, I mean, in terms of kind of somebody who I am just astounded by, I guess it, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but my mum, um, mm. because she, as you know, my father passed away last August. So she mm. has had to bear only her colossal grief for losing her husband of 49 years with she was on the shielding list for a while so she couldn't see anybody um live anywhere near us um you know so the fact that she has survived it and um you know she's she's doing really well is well I mean she is one of the most incredible strong women that I've ever met um yeah so that's brilliant have you managed to see her now yeah because we're in a bubble so as soon as they announced that you could create a support bubble with a single adult um yeah she wasn't given a choice she was told (laughs) she was in a bubble with us (laughs) she was um yeah so she's been down she came down for a long weekend when it was my youngest birthday and um yeah it was just so good to see her so good to see her oh good yeah, we had barbecues and drank wine and ate chocolate. and As it, it should be. Yeah, and um, we're going on holiday hopefully in August um, for what would be their 50th wedding anniversary. So, oh. you know, it'll be bittersweet, but it's, um, yeah, she yeah. she's just kind of, I don't know, I, 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 I've thought on so many occasions, like, how have you done this? Because the thought yeah. of being home alone all day. Oh, whilst you're grieving just well and a lot of us have relied on technology is she able to do that or is yeah, yeah we had to have a it? few um training sessions shall we call them in the art of video calling <laughs> <laughs> early oh, on lovely. um yeah so we we yeah so she's she's been able to um set up kind of um video chats with her pals so they have like a weekly coffee and over whatsapp video and things like that so that's we, nice yeah 
I'm glad. I'm glad that you've she's she's got you've scooped her up into your support bubble. Yeah, and she can't she can't get out of it now. No, 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 it's locked. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so she's coming down next week to um, oh, nice. look after the boys because obviously it's school holidays. So yeah. Oh, perfect. So it's really nice. It's really nice to have that kind of sense of that does feel normal, mm. you know. Yeah. Hanging yeah. about with my mum, it's lovely. Great. Great. Nia, it's been a joy to talk Aww, to you. It's been a joy it, it, to talk to you. I've missed you. I know, I've missed you too. And um, it's been great to hear your perspective because I've always wondered, like, what's it like there because I haven't been to the hospital. So um, thank you for shedding some light on that. And, and thank you and well done oh, thank you. for everything that you've done. And I know you didn't attend the claps, but <laughs> I was clapping for you, oh, and, you. and your colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for thanks for coming on this is strong you certainly deserve your own episode oh you're amazing you're very kind thank you oh thank you This is Strong is brought to you by me, Nikki Vincent. Um, I'm a photographer by trade and always take pictures of my subjects. Uh, so go over to this-is-strong.com and you'll see pictures there of Nia. I'd like to thank her for joining me this week. Um, I know everyone who talks to me takes time out of a very busy schedule, so I'm always grateful that they do. Um, so thank you, Nia. And it was lovely to catch up with you, to be honest. Um, uh, Listen, I hope everyone's keeping well. It is a crazy time. Make sure you're looking after yourself and your family and everybody's mental health. Um, and until next time, stay strong.